Matthew chapter 4, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 8. And beloved, once more, hear the holy word of our holy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Holding your place in Matthew, if you would turn with me also to Luke. Luke 4. We begin our reading there at verse 5. That's Luke 4 and verse 5. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us this morning. Until I came into thy sanctuary, says the psalmist, then understood I their end. The psalmist, you remember, in Psalm 73, is fixated on the world. And he views the, the wicked man and all of his prosperity and all of his temporal blessings and mercies. And he comes to the conclusion that, that his case, being one of great affliction, of almost incessant trouble, is far less desirable than what he sees in the wicked man. And so Psalm 73 begins with a man who is envying the world, dazzled by the prosperity that he sees in it. And then he says this, that he came into the sanctuary of God, and everything became clear. Beloved, when we come into the corporate worship of our God, I wonder if we have that kind of expectation. I wonder if we come on a Lord's Day morning pleading that this would be a clarifying moment for us. That we would see the world as we ought to see it. That we would see sin as we ought to see it. That we would see the strategies of the world, the flesh, and the devil as we ought to see it. You know, the text that's in front of us this morning is a text that reminds us, clarifies for us the fact that we are in a combat. Our captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, is of course the forerunner in the battle. And we've seen him these now several weeks going here and and engaged in bitter combat with the devil. And, And as we've looked at this fight, we've noticed that that here in this text you have a clear picture of how Satan deals with men. If he deals with our head in a certain way, we should expect that he'll deal with the members in a like fashion. This is a clarifying text. Because even as we watch a historical moment unfold for us on the pages of Scripture, we're reminded that you and I are confronted with the same kind of evil every day. 
And our prayer ought to be that as we take up this word, in fact, truly, friend, if, if we take up this word and it doesn't work out this way for us, we failed. We ought to be praying that this word indeed clarifies for us what you, are, you and I are confronted with every day. Here we have the strategy of the devil laid so clearly in front of us. And so, friend, what do you notice as you look at this text, as you look at verse 8, what do you see there? Well, the first thing that Matthew tells us here is that, again, the sa- Satan tempts our Savior. This is his third temptation, but you remember, as Mark tells us, for the past 40 days, Christ has been locked in this engagement with the devil. The idea is, is that this third temptation has followed in quick succession from the previous two. And those two temptations previously began at the end of 40 days. 40 days without food. 40 days driven into the wilderness where the only kind of succor and nourishment Christ could have would be of supernatural power and origin. 40 days of Christ experiencing that hunger. Then Satan sets upon him with one temptation followed by another. That's instructive for us, isn't it? He comes to Christ with these most pregnant, most potent temptations in that moment when he finds Christ most emaciated and most afflicted. But I want you to notice too, in this text we're told that Christ was taken. Not only is he tempted again, but in this text you find here again, the gospel writers are very clear, Christ is passive in this moment. Christ is not led. Christ is, as it were, carried. And friend, we should marvel at that, but the idea is just this, that that as Christ is in his estate of humiliation, and as it was the will of God that he would be taken to the desert, and there through this combat to, to conquer the wiles of the devil, Christ even now is being carried by the most wicked, most foul creature in existence. It's a remarkable thing how far Christ went to procure our redemption. You and I who wouldn't entrust ourselves even to somebody who would be moderately considered untrustworthy. Christ, to accomplish redemption, was pleased to be carried by nothing less than the devil to accomplish salvation for us. But as you see Christ taken to this exceeding high mountain, you'll notice that the temptation now has also changed. Not only is there a change of place, but there's a change of tactic. Here, you remember, up to this point, Satan has been asking that question, that question that was supposed to be most piercing. If thou be the Son of God, and and the idea there is, of course, that he's trying to sow doubt in Christ. And and so he begins with the bread, and and he says very pointedly, if you are the Son of God, as God himself has proclaimed in the Jordan, as the Holy Spirit had signified in your baptism, if you are that Son, then why were you driven 40 days into the wilderness and so now pressed with hunger? Can you really entrust yourself to paternal care? Surely you need now to fend for yourself. You can't throw yourself upon the goodness of God. Satan in that temptation was foiled. Then, another change of tactic. If thou be the Son of God, says Satan, he, he takes Christ into a place 
A place where, where one would expect to see the goodness of God most manifest. He takes Christ to that place where the whole church under the old covenant was, was taught to look there, to see God's blessing. And he says, well, surely now after 40 days, the word of God needs to be put to this test. And, and I'll make it easy. I'll, I'll put you in that place, that, that theater as it were, where you would expect most to see God's goodness. Just test it now, because surely after 40 days, the word requires some vindication. And again, Satan is foiled. But now he moves to a third point, and he takes, he takes the conversation to a different angle. He doesn't ask anymore if thou be the Son of God. Instead, he turns to Christ, and he simply says, worship me. It's not about Christ and his identity. Satan has been foiled twice now on that front. Now Satan would dazzle Christ. Now Satan would allure Christ to see his own pretended glory. To see his own pretended power. And on that basis would draw him into sin. That was Satan's attempt. But friend, I want you to notice... As you look at this text, you have an alternative that's, that's proffered. What I mean by that is as Satan calls upon Christ to worship him, he does so with a promise. The idea there is quite straightforward, isn't it? So far, Satan has had a very clear picture that the Son of God is quite willing to undergo all manner of affliction to accomplish his Father's will. And that Christ will be undaunted. No matter the degree of humiliation, he will be undaunted in obedience to his Father. But here, Satan offers something that you shouldn't miss. Here, he says, I will give to you the kingdoms of this world. We'll see what that means in just a moment. But you should interpret that as though Satan were offering Christ a different way. A different opportunity than the veil of tears and the identity as a man of sorrows that Christ was already exhibiting. Do you want the nations to be yours? Just worship me. You need not go through any more humiliation. I'll re relinquish all and you'll have your kingdoms. You see, in this moment, friend, you and I are taught something crucial about temptation. You and I are taught here that sin promises much to lead men from God. Sin promises much to lead men from God. And I want us to consider briefly this morning three things that are clear in this text. I want us to see what sin presents, what it promises, and finally what it prescribes. What in this text is presented to Christ? What is presented? Luke records it this way. He says, The devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now the idea there is, is that you should understand this either in two ways. It's either that Christ here in this moment has a display. It's a supernatural power of the devil clearly in front of him. A lot of the older theologians would say that, that it was a supernatural kind of moment where, where Christ was taken as it were through all of the kingdoms of the world. Or in other words, that all the kingdoms were made visible to him as he stood on the pinnacle, this high place. 
Or you could simply take it as an expression of, a general expression of his vantage point. But either way, the point is this, that in a moment of time, Satan took him to the highest place to show him all of those kingdoms that were now still lost and undone in Adam. Matthew adds to that, the devil showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. I want you to notice, holding those two accounts together, we're told something very clearly about this presentation. The first thing we're told is, is that Satan would have Christ see the vastness of the world that is under sin. But he would also show them their glory. Note that. In other words, what you have here is Satan presenting a dazzling view of the glory of the kingdoms. Not its suffering. Not the ravages of death that would be present. No, he takes them only to those things that would most allure. Those things that were most sensibly glorious and dazzling. That's what he shows Christ. Only the glory. And only at such a speed. And only at such a distance as would allow him to see only that which might dazzle. Friend, I want you to notice here then we have a clear picture of how temptation does work. Whether from the world, the flesh, or the devil. It will always present to us a partial picture. It will always present to us a partial picture so as to allure us to whatever it might promise. It will always be partial. You see, temptations will emphasize visible glory. And the scriptures hold this out to us in so many ways. Uh, Take, for instance, the description of the harlot that you have in the book of Proverbs. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield, and the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter. Note what he says there. Solomon is so very clear. He is allured by what he sees and by what he hears. But then Solomon concludes that section by saying, he goes as an ox to the slaughter. He doesn't realize that he's a beast being slaughtered. No, because what he has been presented is altogether alluring. What he's been presented is altogether attractive to him. All that he's been presented is that which dazzles. That was the psalmist's experience in Psalm 73. The psalmist, a godly man, says this, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I suppose I don't even need to say it, but note what he says there. When he saw the prosperity of the wicked, his attention was driven away from the sorrows that came with sin. Driven away from the afflictions that accompany those who live live contrary to the law of God. His mind was driven away from the things of eternity that would remind him that if you are an enemy of God, you will for everlasting years be under his torment. No, no, the godly man even here demonstrates that the prosperity of the wicked can dazzle and to such a point that it eclipses all of those realities. That's what temptation does. Sin comes and it leads men to think. It leads men to think that all that is found within it is glory, comfort, security, and peace. It's always partial. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is fixated 
on the temporal mercies that these wicked men receive, and by being so, so focused, their end is eclipsed from his view. And friend, our sin does the same thing. The greedy man, the greedy man is convinced that in his covetousness, he finds true security. In acquiring wealth, he'll find true and lasting happiness. When lust comes, it says you will find true and you will find lasting pleasure. When pride or notoriety would tempt the man, it says this is the way to true success. Whenever at last foolishness, foolishness becomes the man's temptation, the man is convinced that that's his true method of release and happiness. Temptation always Beloved, it will always, always present the bait and hide the hook. It always will. Last year in hospital, there was in the room a number of people, and all of them were, were chatting. The, t- the television sets were blaring and flashing. And that was the daily experience. But one day, one morning, as, as the din of, of the room was in full swing, as everybody was engaged in their own conversations, as the TV was flashing and blaring, I happened to notice out of the corner of my eye a flash. And as I looked, it was a nurse drawing a curtain slowly unannounced and pulled the court curtain over the corridor. Nobody else in the room had noticed it. Nobody paid attention to the nurse and what she was doing. And as I continued to listen over the sound of the television set, over the sound of the chattering of the people in the room, I heard a bed slowly creaking down the corridor. You see, somebody had passed away in the room next to ours that morning. Friend, that's what temptation will do. It will quite happily pull the curtain over death, over the effects of sin, allow you to leave the squawking and the flashing television on. It will allow you to carry on in your lives as much as it will, and it will always do so, drawing the curtain as much as it can over the fruits and the effects of sin. It always will. And friend, I think while there's nothing new under the sun, our generation needs especially to be aware of this. We live in an age where this method is engineered. What I mean by that, friend, is we live in a world where these things, the prosperity of the world, is thrown into our faces with rapidity and with precision. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all of those things are engineered to give us at quick speed a picture of something. Friend, what, what's presented there so often? It's the prosperity of a godless world. You and I need to be very careful. You and I need to be very careful in a generation such as ours. You see, it's not just, friend, and this text is so clear, isn't it? It's not just the, the, the sinful use of those things looking at those things, hearing those things that are objectively sinful, that's the problem. 
My friend, if I can be so bold, you and I, if we make use of those things, we need to be far more careful than we are. Because those things will present to us only the prosperity of the wicked. Those things are calculated only to allow us to see the world, the ungodly world, in its comfortability and in its prosperity and never allow us to look long enough to see its destruction. When you and I turn on those screens, friend, I want you to know something. The Christian ought to be saying, I am going to be lied to, either in words or by pictures. I'm going to be presented things that are not true, and I will be alert to see prosperity when I should see destruction. The Native Americans in the American West, when they were trying to kill a wolf, would bathe a blade in the blood of an animal, stick it into a field, and just leave it there. And if a wolf would come along, it would lick the blade until the wolf bled to death. Because the wolf, because of his appetite, because of his pleasure, couldn't see that the very thing that he was playing with would be the very cause of his demise. Beloved, all of those things, all of those elements are found in this text. Satan would have men only look at the pleasure and not see the destruction that lies behind. But what does it promise? What does it promise? The text reads, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it, all shall be thine. There are two ways of looking at this particular, particular phrase. One way is to see it simply as an absolute deception. In other words, that Satan is simply lying in a bold-faced way. Uh, and there are a number of reasons why we could say that. Of course, with regard to God, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He exercises over it the only sovereign prerogative. Of course, even with regard to the Son, in Psalm 2, we read, Ask of me, says the Father, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. It belongs to the Son by right. The very thing that Satan has promised, Christ is entitled to as he is Son. And we could go further. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. All of these things already belong to God and to God the Son. And so what Satan is offering here, we could see here as an absolute deception. But there's another way of looking at this too. You see, in this text, you could interpret this in a bit more of, of a nuanced way. As though Satan were saying that he would relinquish his own power. Would, would relinquish his own activity in these kingdoms. If Christ would simply worship him. And of course Satan does exercise that power. For instance that's why he's called the prince and power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. And we could go on and on. And so you could interpret this text as though Satan were saying, I will simply stop 
my labor among the children of disobedience, if you would simply bow, would worship me. Well, friend, I want you to notice this. If we take it even in the latter sense, it's still only a partial truth. If it's not an absolute lie, if it's just a partial truth, it's still only that. The word here, whenever he says, this power will I give you, it's the word in the original, it's exousia. It's not dunamis. It's, it's not the word for, for brute power or force. He's saying, I will give you a moral or a legal right to these kingdoms. And of course, Satan had no right to them. It's a partial, partial truth. And therein, of course, lies the deception. You see, Satan here, however you look at this text, Satan was promising to Christ more than he could deliver. Satan was promising to Christ more than he could deliver. And so it is true with all temptation. Sin promises more than it can deliver. I want you to go back with me just in your mind for a moment to Genesis 3. This is why we read that text. In Genesis 3, you have, of course, Satan coming in the form of the serpent, coming to tempt, first of all, Eve. Our translations indicate, with a question mark, that the first exchange begins with a question. But it's not an interrogative. In the original, it's it's really left as, as an ellipsis. In other words... It's more, it's, it's more a statement, a, a whimsical reflection, if you like, than it is truly a question. What do I mean by that? Well, the idea is, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Dot, dot, dot. As he's looking at the tree that's forbidden, he is, as it were, saying, isn't that not a shame? Is it not a shame that you can't partake of this thing that seems as evil find it good for food, pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired, to make one wise? You see, you see the stratagem in that. Suggest for a moment that, that perhaps there's something more. Perhaps there's something more that sin can offer than that you'll find in God. It's the idea. And here's the promise that he makes. God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then shall your eyes be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. There's the deception, isn't it? You shall be as gods. You shall attain an enviable position, a position that even God himself would envy. That's the idea. That's the blasphemy of Genesis 3. But that, friend, is what sin promises. That's what temptation brings. And it's not just there. Beloved, you and I are confronted with the same kind of thing day and daily. Take, for instance, those who would sin so as to seemingly secure themselves, whether it be through lying, whether it be through cheating their neighbor. What are they doing? Well, they're saying that sin will promise me safety. But you know how the scriptures present that kind of thing. Thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. The idea is, it won't. Sin cannot promote any security. And any security that you might have is only seeming. Instead, like the prophet says there of Egypt, it is like a reed that as you lean upon it, it will simply pierce you. Another example. 
You see, those, in this case, who entrust themselves to their own labor, that is, who give themselves, as it were, to their own occupations, thinking that that is the source of their blessing and temporal security. In other words, those who would idolize their jobs, this is what the scriptures say. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This job that you've idolized, these temporal blessings that you have so coveted, here we're told very pointedly, it all comes to naught. It seems, it seems, doesn't it, that this is true productivity. It seems like you're accomplishing something lasting. But the scriptures say it's actually a vanity if your life rests upon those things. Sin says, temptation comes, and it says, find your security, find your happiness in those goods. And the Lord says, it's promising you something more than it can deliver. And then, of course, friend, you find this so often. Sin always promises to bring lasting good. Sin always promises to bring lasting pleasure. But how do the scriptures speak of sin? It's the pleasures of sin for a season. It's a pre-limited season. It promises lasting, enduring good. But the scriptures say it is only for a season. You know, friend, for an illustration of this, I, I could just take you to the street. I could take you to the street, I could take you to the local drug addict, and I could say you can find there clearly in his face and in his body the very evidence of what we're speaking about this morning. What do I mean? Friend, have you ever, have you ever looked at somebody who is, who is enthralled to a drug? Have you ever talked with any of them? Every time they go to that substance... The sense is, this will be the high that will never fade. That's the idea. And so they give themselves, they sacrifice their families, they sacrifice their wealth, they sacrifice their bodies to this thing that seemingly promises them everlasting pleasure. And when you and I see them, we see the lie of it all, don't we? Friend, that's not just the drug addict's plight. That is you and that is me with regard to every sin. When you and I are tempted in this way, you and I are tempted to think that this thing will procure for us lasting security, lasting pleasure, lasting notoriety. And you don't realize that you're stumbling around emaciated and you've sacrificed everything that is good in your life to its service. Sin promises more than it can deliver. But friend, just for a moment, how contrary is that to the service of God? Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. But what does it prescribe? First of all, if it presents to us only a partial truth, if it presents to us only glory, 
If it promises us something more than itself can deliver, what does it require of us? Matthew records the statement this way. He says, if thou wilt fall down and worship me, Luke puts it this way, if thou therefore wilt worship me. The sense is that that the temptation that comes to Christ is, is really this. Engage in a momentary act of open rebellion against God. Cast off God just for this moment. In other words, cut off yourself from God. For this, and it shall be yours. That's all. Just cast off God, and all of these things will be yours. And all of their glory, and all of its vastness, and all of its promises, it will all all be yours. Just, Just leave off your service and obedience to God. You see, friend, in this case, we're we're reminded that this is the subtlety and this is the hook of every temptation. It promises much, but it requires even more from you. Temptation requires men to part with all for sin. You see, what does it mean to cast off God? What does it mean to leave off the worship and service of God, it means the destruction of all mankind. That's what it meant for Adam. Oh, it seemed like such a small and such a reasonable thing. Just just this once, just give in this once. It, It seems reasonable to yourself. It seems alluring. It's not a big deal. And all mankind fell. Sin requires you to part with all. And friend, were it not for the sustaining grace of God, were it not for the security we enjoy in Jesus Christ, friend, it would require you, even now, even your eternal salvation, if it could. That's what sin presents to every one of us. Cast off all for it. Friend, you see this even today. The Apostle puts it this way in Romans 1. God God also gave them up to an uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. What is it that happened here in Romans 1? Well, these ones were tantalized by temptation. And so the text tells us God gave them over to it. Sin said, enjoy this pleasure now. And what did it cost them? God gave them over to it. The words of the scriptures that ought to make us shudder. He gave them over to it. What did it cost them, friend? It requires all. Every sin, friend, every sin aside from the restraining grace of God would in fact harden all of us. It requires men to forfeit their comfort It requires them to grieve God's spirit. It requires them, as it were, if you you like, to increase the cost of their own redemption by laying even more debt upon Christ. And of course, if they are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, it requires their souls for a lost eternity. 
Sin, friend, every sin requires your all and mine. The idea is like this, I suppose. If you had a man who came into a vast estate and he had a title in his hand that gave him all of that land and all of its riches and that man was cold one day and he lights the title on fire to give him momentary warmth. It's a pale analogy, but it's the closest I could come, come to to what sin calls us to do. Burn it all for that momentary, momentary advantage. Burn it all in service to this particular sin or temptation. It's foolishness. But friend, you and I are immured in it. The first question that you and I have to ask as we leave this text is, are we a people who have seen the wickedness of this world and its vanity? You see, friend, I could speak to you all day long and and, and we could have a large congregation gathered this morning and we could talk at considerable length about the wiles and the stratagems of the devil. But the fact of the matter is it will do none of us any good unless we ourselves have seen the vanity of it all. Are are you still, friend, are, are you still holding to the lie of the world? That influencer, that artist, that athlete, that politician, that these ones whom the world looks to with the utmost admiration but who are godless, do you believe that theirs is a position to be envied? Children, do you really think this morning that those people who are idolized by your peers should be envied by you? You see, friend, until we are taught that all of that is a veneer, until we are taught that all of that is a sham, we are still in the the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. And Christian, even you, you and I this morning, don't think that you and I can't be dazzled by the world. Psalm 73 is a wonderful picture, a glorious picture of a godly man truly dazzled by the lie of sin and temptation. In what ways do you believe those those lies this morning? Because you do. I don't know if you realize it, but you do. You and I live in a world where these things, you and I confront them and we don't even know them. In what ways do you believe the lie? Christian, there is something in this text that we can't miss. We've highlighted the wiles of the devil, but in this text you also have a reminder through contrast of what the godly enjoy. The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. Friends, sin and temptation will will offer the world, will offer the greatest pleasures and the most power to sinners. But it always comes with sorrow. It will always make the man like the wolf, glutting himself on his own pleasures to death. But the Lord, he makes rich and adds no sorrow with it. The blessing of God, 
beloved, always, always far exceeds even the greatest things that sin could promise. And friend, when we come to God's sanctuary, as we close, this is the kind of thing you and I are to be reminded of. This is the place to remind ourselves that, that you and I live in a facade. Uh, not, not that we ourselves do, but that the world around us is, is covered in a false veneer. And that in this place we're reminded that, that sin itself can never, never fulfill what it promises. That the glory that we see that we're so tempted to be dazzled by is only momentary and it's only partial. And that what sin requires of you and me would be all. This is the place for us to learn that. And yet, friend, I would say to you this morning, and I know that I know you know this, but most on a Lord's Day morning don't want to hear that. They want to leave as though they're not locked in a bitter combat. Surrounded by the wiles of the devil that would ensnare their souls, harden their hearts, and send them into an eternity of hell. But friend, the scriptures do bring light. They remind us that this is the world in which you and I live. This is the kind of thing, friend, that should make us pause before we go to our phones. Turn on our televisions. Look at the world. You and I should first and foremost be praying that whenever we have any dealings with the world, that the Lord would keep us from being dazzled by these things because they're lies. But the second thing, friend, that this text holds out to us so very clearly is that as only Christ could withstand these temptations, as only Christ could stand where every other man has ever fallen, we're reminded that we must go to him. Our gaze should be fixed on him, he alone, who could stand. This should heighten for us the glory of Christ, shouldn't it? You realize you've fallen to the same stratagem today. You and I, we have succumbed to these temptations ourselves, not in the past month, but today. And yet Christ stood. The best in the church have fallen. Only one has stood. And so we go to him. And so we are to pray for his sake that we be granted clarity. That by his spirit we would be more inclined to think on things above. And that we would be a people more in diligent use of the means of grace. Beloved, all of these things should remind us that we can only be strong as we stand in Him. Amen.